we are now known by the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit and united as the Church, the body of Christ. Made new in the fullness of his love, because in Christ all things are made new. Welcome everyone. So excited to be here with you this morning. My name is Sean Maybe. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I love what we're doing in this series in Ephesians. We are able to build off paragraph by paragraph what God's Word says, connect the sermons together, and I'm, I'm loving it. I hope you are as well, not just on Sundays, but if you got a chance to grab our Ephesian devotionals, I think there's a few left in the bookstore. It's a way to study Ephesians on your own and in the community groups, in discussion guides based on these sermons. Our hope and prayer as a church is that at the end of this series, you would know what God's word says in the book of Ephesians, and that would leave you different, that you'd be transformed and more obedient to God. We're going to be in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 12 this morning. So if you have Bibles, you can open them up there. That's kind of where we're going to be sitting. It's our main passage this morning. But because these, these sermons are so connected together, I want to remind you of a truth that Todd taught us last week. And it comes from Ephesians 2, one through, uh, Ephesians 2, verse 1. And it says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And I, I think this is important because what it's saying is not that we're physically dead, but that we're spiritually dead. That our natural tendency, our natural uh, desire is to do what it, we want instead of what helps other people or what God wants. We are naturally selfish. We are striving for what we desire over anything else. That's what God's word says. And why this is an issue is because our society tells us something very different, that, that we aren't dead, but that we are naturally good, that people are born good. And I wanted to show a, show a picture to you guys. It's an adorable picture of three kids, three babies, playing together, having fun. Look at that cute smile. And if you've seen this picture before, this is used a lot on public transportation as an advertisement with the phrase, no one is born racist, and that hate is taught. And I actually agree that no one is born racist, but the belief behind that statement is that we are good, that inherently when we are born like this in diapers, we, we are good and we learn to do bad things. But that's not what Ephesians 1 verse 2 says. It says quite the opposite, that we at our core from birth are dead, so bad that it's called dead, that we choose what we want and rebel against God instead. And I think if you have kids or you've been around kids at all, this is something you've seen very clearly. I have a 16-month-old named Rowan. She's awesome. I brought some pictures of her as well. She is adorable. Um, and if my daughter has an idol at all, it would be puppies. Not dogs, everything is puppies, so we have a puppy chair for her to sit in. If you look at the next photo, she's got a puppy backpack she carries around, and every day she wants to watch a puppy TV show. Doesn't matter what show, as long as there's a puppy in there. And I, and I promise you this, my daughter wasn't born a racist, and she wasn't born a liar. But the second my daughter can speak in full sentences, she's going to lie. Just like the second she could crawl or walk, she disobeyed. Because her tendency is to do what she wants, not what benefits anyone else or what God wants. It's about her. And that's how we all are wired. It's why if my daughter plays with another kid and they have a toy she wants, she will go up and steal it from him. 
Or if we're on a walk and she sees a puppy that she's never seen before, she'll run up to it to give it a hug. And I, as a good parent, uh, parent would grab her and protect her from this dog we don't know in case she, they, they bite her. And she will scream at the top of her lungs and then bite me. And if you've ever been bitten by a, a, a year and a half year old, you know that they have daggers in there, man. They're not doled down yet. And so I'm going to have scars from protecting my, my child from puppies. But it's because, it's because our natural wiring is for our desires above anyone else and above what God wants. And that's what we talked about last week. We need this reconciliation between us and God because we're spiritually dead. We've rejected him. But what we're going to be talking about today in this passage is this uh, relational reconciliation between men, between people, because of this selfishness and our desires for ourselves over anyone else. So we're going to dive into this passage. It's Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. It's a long one, so hold on tight. Verse 11, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promises, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two and making peace. And that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached, the, preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. There's a lot in there. It could be probably three sermons, but we're going to answer three questions this morning. What is the problem with our identity? What is the solution to our identity? And how does this new identity change us? What is the problem with our identity? The solution to our identity? And how does this new identity change us? Let's pray before we dive in. Father God, we thank you for your word and we pray that for everyone here that you have brought that you would speak into their hearts and mind uh, as your, your word is read and as we hear it today that you would help us to leave here differently. Any sin or uh, prejudices or biases we have against other people who are different than us, I pray that you would reveal them to us and wash them away. Because what your word says here is that we are new in you and that you tear down hostility and through you we can be reconciled and glorify you as a body of believers, as, as your followers united together. And we pray that that would be what we represent today and moving forward. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first question is the problem with our identity and it's found in verses 11 and 12. I'm going to read it again for us. 
Remember, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember at, at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is God's word. And when we read God's word, we have to look for connecting words. And one of the biggest ones is therefore. And Paul is essentially saying with just that word is I'm about to make an argument and for you to understand it, you need to look back at the previous passage because it is foundational to what I'm about to talk about. And so we need to summarize what Todd talked about last week. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is a clear presentation of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And every good news starts with bad news. And the bad news is that we're dead. That we're dead spiritually, that our natural tendency is to do what we want instead of what God wants, that we are in rebellion against him. But even while we were dead in our sin, Jesus made it possible for us to be alive and died on the cross and rose again. And whoever puts their faith and trust in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins is saved. It's a gift from God, not something that's earned by works. And Paul is saying, if you believe that, since you've experienced that as followers of Jesus, therefore, remember, remember what your life was like Gentiles before your relationship with God. And Gentiles is kind of a weird word. We don't use it very often. You guys probably don't talk about Gentiles around the water cooler at work. It's probably something you only hear in this room, in this, in this church. A Gentile is somebody that is not ethnically Jewish, that doesn't have the blood of Abraham in their veins. And I'm going to assume that's most of you in this room. It's me as well. And so it helps us to read this passage as it was written to us as Gentiles. And what he's saying is, remember, at one time, before you were a follower of Jesus, what your life was like, what your hope was in. You weren't a part of the nation of Israel. You didn't have their promises. You were without God and because of that, without hope. And I want to read for us a passage that I think gets to the heart of and the context of what Paul is saying. And it comes from Genesis 17, verses 7 through 10. This is God speaking to Abraham. It's part of the Abrahamic covenant. And this is what it says. God speaking, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to be your offspring and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offsprings that the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. This is God's word. And so what Paul is is referencing is that God chose Israel, not based on anything that they did, but he chose them as his people. And this caused ethnic and racial division between people, those who were uh, Israelites and those who were not. And Israelites identified themselves by the promises of God, by being circumcised, by the blood in their veins, and who their their relatives were. And I think we do what Israel has done. They kind of wore their identity on their sleeve. And we do the same thing. It's, It's the way we dress. It's what we look like. I think probably the best example, and I love it, is bumper stickers on cars. 
right? Because when I sit behind you for 20 seconds, I can tell what's important to you. Enough that you're willing to, to put it on your car, maybe damage the paint and hurt the resale value. You're saying, this is me. This is what I identify with. And that's great. There's, there's small things like being a Browns fan, a Steelers fan. You're, you identify with this Cleveland championship with the Cavaliers that we earned together. So it's on your car. Or, or if you identify and hope in a political party, a presidential candidate, it's on your car. The same thing the, Gentile, uh, the Jewish people were doing, that's what their hope was in. And what God is revealing to us in verses 11 and 12 is what our past identities were. Before Jesus, where was our worth and value? Where did we hope in? How did we try to strive self-centeredly to, to earn God's favor? to be good enough, to, to earn value, to, be, to matter. And if we're Gentiles, uh, similar to Gentiles back then, we, we probably hoped in and have identities in similar things, whether it's our job, our families, relationships, our sexuality, the government, Caesar. That's what the Gentiles would be hoping in. But all of those things fall short. Every single one. Don't give us lasting contentment. They don't, they don't meet our needs. And most of all, they don't leave us in a good relationship with God. They don't, they don't undo the wrongdoing that we've done. They don't make us right with God. The same with the Jewish people, and we'll see this a little bit further on, but their hope was in their race, their ethnicity, the law, being obedient to God, trying to earn his favor. And that falls short as well. And this passage reveals two ways, the two problems with our identity. The first is we're without hope. It's what verse 12 says. We were without hope, without God. That, that was our state prior to Christ because of our past identities. They were hopeless. They didn't solve our problems. They didn't leave us with contentment. And they didn't give us lasting value and worth. And the second one, which is going to be the focus of this morning, is that all identities— apart from an identity in God, leave us with hostility and barriers in relationships. All identities, apart from an identity in God, leaves us with hostility and barriers in relationships. And it's, it can be small. It can be something like if I identify as a Browns fan, and unfortunately, I really do, probably too much. But that causes division and barrier between me and Steelers fans. It does. The problem, though, is whatever the more serious our identity gets and the more worth and value we find in that identity, the more serious the barrier and the hostility gets. And so if our worth and value is in our kids and their success, if your daughter tries out for the nine-year-old soccer team and another nine-year-old girl gets the starting position over her, that nine-year-old girl becomes your enemy. And, and, and if your identity is in your job, if your worth and value is in that and somebody else gets a promotion over you, that person, even if they're qualified, they become your enemy. And in the political spectrum, whether you're Republican or Democrat, if that's where your identity and hope is in, those people who are different than you become your enemy. If your identity and worth is in American nationalism, then your enemy becomes refugees and immigrants even if they were fellow followers of Jesus. It creates division and hostility among us. It happened with the Jews and the Gentiles. It happens to us today. There's division because of what we found our hope in and what our worth was in. 
the next question is what, is, what is the solution to this identity? And it comes from verses 13 through 18. It says, But now in Christ, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in the flesh the dividing walls of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments, expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access to one spirit in the Father. This is God's word. The solution to the problem of our identity and the hostility, hostility and barriers it creates is Jesus. It's always been Jesus, and it's the same way that the, the problem with our broken relationship with God is a relationship with Jesus, like we talked about last week. The same is true today. The solution to our broken relationships between men, between people, is Jesus. Because at the cross, at the foot of the cross, all people are made equal. Because when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are saying, God, I am not good enough. That I've fallen short, that I need you. My brokenness, my sin is too much, and I can do nothing to be good enough on my own. And what we do when we put our trust in him, we're taking off our old identity, whether it's our sexuality, political beliefs, our marriage, our job, whatever it was in, we're laying it at the feet of Jesus and saying, God, this doesn't matter anymore. This isn't taking precedent over my life. And God gives us a new identity in him, in Jesus. And this new identity can't be taken away. It's an identity where there's worth and value in what Jesus has done for us and what he says about us. So the striving that we were striving for to earn worth and value is gone. What we hoped in before to make us whole, to give us hope, is nothing. It pales in comparison to what Jesus has done that can't be taken away. That is our hope. That is our solution. And it only comes through a relationship with Jesus. So where are you at? Do you know him? Or are you still holding on to your old identity, your old hope, that will fail you, that will leave you without worth and value, that will leave you broken and with barriers? Or do you want a new identity in Christ? Isn't this the world that we want to live in where there's a new identity, where there's no more racism, no more classism, no more sexism because we have been made whole in Jesus? And so what was once important is not important and the only thing that matters is what Jesus has united us in. That's what he's done for us. And I love verse 14 because it says, for he, Jesus himself, is our peace. It doesn't say that Jesus has made peace for us or through him peace is an option. He says, it says that Jesus is literally our peace. The only way for there to be peace between us and God is Jesus. The only way for us to have lasting peace with people who are different than us, that look different, that act different, that have different experiences than us is Jesus in a relationship with him. 14 goes on to say, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility? So no matter what our difference is, no matter uh, where we were at politically, what our hope was in, 
in our past life before Christ, he has taken all of us from every tribe, every language, every skin color, and whoever has placed their trust in Jesus, he has made a new group, a new family, whose identity and hope is in Jesus above all else. And he's torn down the barriers and the hostilities between us. And the readers of, of this, the original audience, the Jews and Gentiles, they would have seen this in two ways. The first barrier that was taken down is a physical one. As the Jews worshiped God in Jerusalem, in the temple, there was an outer court called the, the court of the Gentiles. And there wasn't a wall dividing it, but there was pillars. And it was clearly marked that the Gentiles could not go any further in to the temple to worship. They couldn't be in the presence of God. It'd be like you inviting somebody to your house and saying, hey, you stay on my front porch. You can look in the windows, but don't come in. And what God has said and what God has done here is that wall, that clear physical barrier has been broken down in Christ. And all people, no matter ethnic background or where they're from or the experience they've had, they can be in the presence of God and have a relationship with him through Jesus. The second barrier that's broken down is a social one, primarily for the Jewish people where to earn God's favor, they would follow the law, the, the, the law that he has given them in the Old Testament. And most of the ceremonial law that they were trying to follow to earn God's favor separated them from the Gentile people. If they did certain activities with the Gentiles, it made them unclean, that they couldn't go into the temple to worship. And what God is saying here in verse 15 is that he abolished the law of commandments. And he's saying, essentially saying, I've rendered the law ineffective, ineffective for what the Jewish people were trying to use it for because they viewed the law as a means to be good enough because of their ethnicity, because of their race, they were gonna be good enough and made perfect before God. And what he's saying is that doesn't work. Everybody, no matter who they are and what they've done, is, is only made right through Jesus in a relationship with him. And so those social barriers have been undone as well. All people can be united together if they have a relationship with Jesus because he tears down hostility and barriers. I saw this play out when I was in high school. I took a trip to Costa Rica. It was through this church, a trip with a bunch of high schoolers, and we're going to build an addition to a church in Costa Rica that had outgrown its size. And we were doing a bunch of work we probably were unqualified to do. We were digging trenches, bending rebar, rebarb, laying cinder blocks, mixing cement. We got, we got the job done, though. And one night, I'll never forget it because it was the most clear just presence of the Holy Spirit as we were worshiping. But we joined together with the church, and we sang worship songs in Spanish. And afterwards, the church came around us came around our, our group and prayed over us, laid their hands on us, and thanked God for us and asked God to grow us and make us more like him. And I, this, this will always stick out to me because I think I knew this. I knew it to be true, but it was the first time I experienced the church as not, or Christianity as not something white people believe in Northeastern Ohio or something my parents believe, but as something that God is doing in the hearts and minds of people all over the world through his son, Jesus. It was the first time I saw the beauty of, of unity in diversity. And that there was these people who had a different economic background, education background, a different experience growing up, different skin color, different language, probably different political beliefs, 
and yet I have more in common with them and had more in common with them than my friends back home who weren't believers. Because our old identities and all those differences were laid at the feet of Jesus and we were united in the one thing that truly mattered and that was him. And we could worship. The solution to our hostility, our barriers, our identities is a relationship with Jesus and an identity in him where we are no longer the sum of what we believe and our values, but we are what Jesus has done for us. And he changes all of those things and submits them to him. This is what we want to be, a body of believers who is united so much so that it brings glory to Jesus and brings people to him above anything else. And it brings us to the last point. How does this Last question, how does this new identity change us? What does this matter to our lives? And it comes from verses 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being our cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. We are united and cannot be divided any longer. Because in what, what verse 18 says is this beautiful picture of the understanding of the Trinity is that we are united with God the Father, made right in relationship with him because of our faith and trust in Jesus' the Son, Jesus' death and resurrection, and then are filled with the very Spirit of God. And so if you are a believer, you have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you, and we cannot be in opposition to one another. Paul here goes through three illustrations of how this new identity plays out in our lives. The first one is the identity of, of a citizen. We are new citizens together. We are citizens of heaven, of the kingdom of God. And what unites citizens together is this, this focus on the well-being of the nation that we are a part of. And so what that means for us as brothers and sisters in Christ, as follow, fellow believers, is that our goals and what we live for changes. Because we are living now for the kingdom of God and his glory. So we are living for him to be glorified. We are living to be obedient to him. And we are living for people to come to know him and join into this new identity where their hope and value can't be taken away and can't change. The second illustration he gives us is that we are actually a part of the household of God. That means that we are part of the family of God. And so if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, he views you as a son or daughter and it means that the, the people sitting next to you who have a relationship with Jesus are, are brothers and sisters to you in Christ. I know that's a hard one. Families are messy. We all, all haven't had great experiences with family, but this is the picture of the perfect family. If you didn't have a good family experience, what would you dream up a family to be like? This is what it is, a perfect family. Where we're messy, we're diverse, but we are there for one another, we care for one another, and we're reminding each other of what Jesus has done for us and the promises he's given to us. Lastly, he says we are like a temple, a dwelling place being built up in Christ to experience more of him, to experience the fullness of who Jesus is. And I brought this for us from home 
These are not mine. This is my daughter's blocks, promise, okay? And this illustrates what Jesus is saying here, that we are being built together and that Jesus is the cornerstone. It's the first block that's been laid. We're being built together. Every other stone is dependent on the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets are the foundation, the stones built around Jesus, telling us through the power of the Holy Spirit what he has done. And everybody else in this room, we are being built on that. No matter our skin color, our ethnicity, the language we speak, who we vote for, we are being built together because our identity in Christ is, is over everything else. And so this is the beautiful picture of, of unity and diversity. We are not made to be in isolation, but in community together. And in that community, we experience the fullness of God. I experienced this probably the best when I was in college. I was in a small group with four, four guys. We're all very different, very, very different. One of them was from rural America, homecoming king, high school quarterback, very charismatic with his beliefs about God. The other one grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, wealthier, divorced parents, didn't grow up a believer. Another one was, grew up in the inner city, African-American, same-sex attracted, and there was me from Hudson, Ohio. And there's very little we had in common. There was very little that would make us be friends naturally. But the one thing that mattered is our identity was in Jesus. And as we met all year, as we prayed together and studied God's word together, I grew more in that group because of the beauty of unity and diversity and seeing the fullness of God and God revealing himself to me through what he's doing in the lives of these other people. And I want to read for us really quickly one, one last passage, and it comes from Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude, that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people's languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. If we don't love diversity in the, in the body of Christ, in the church, if we only worship with, serve with, read the Bible with people who look like us, who vote like us, who sin like us, then we're not going to like what heaven is like at all. This is what God's word describes heaven like. Every nation, every tribe, every language worshiping God because what was once paramount, what was once our identity is laid at the cross and the only thing that matters where our worth and value is secured is in what Jesus has done for us. So what are we doing? How are we spending our time? How are we serving? Is it only with people like us? Or are we living in what eternity will be like in this beautiful unity and diversity? This is what God's word is talking about here, this, this need for relational reconciliation. Christians need to be on the forefront of, of giving people dignity and value because what God's word says in Genesis 1 and 2 is that we are made in the image of God, that all people have value and worth that can't be stripped from them. And we need to care for them and love them. But what this passage in Ephesians is saying is that we lead by example in that first and foremost with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we need to love one another. How we care for people in the church, even if they're drastically different than us, reflects on God 
And whether he gets glory or not, and whether people are pushed away from belief in Jesus because Christians don't even love each other well. There's so much um, division in the church. How could this God be real? We, we defame that when we don't live in unity. God has reconciled us. The, the solution to our problem of identity is a new identity, and that's Jesus. Where all relationships, all barriers, all hostility can be broken down and reconciled. We are transformed in 2018, transformed through relational reconciliation into one new family. Let's pray. Father God, we, we come before you, and this is a hard passage, a hard truth from your word, but I pray that today, even as we think about this passage later, that you would reveal blind spots to us, ways in we have not been living this out, that we have um, stuck to what is comfortable because people are like us instead of doing what you've called us to do to live in the fullness of, of the unity and diversity of, of your church and your people. I pray that we would lay down our identities that we slip back into that we hope in instead of you, that we would leave those at the cross, that we would love one another and be united with people who are drastically different than us because you are the most important thing and you are what we are living for. We pray that you are glorified through us as we leave here today as one new family, united together in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.